So this morning's message is the uh, second part of a two-part discussion of expressive individualism. Uh, you recall that we are considering this subject of expressive individualism because it is the majority worldview among Americans today. I think expressive individualism is the biggest threat to your spiritual life today. And moms and dads, I'm persuaded that the biggest threat that you're going to face in rearing your children in the next 10 years or so is going to be expressive individualism. And regrettably, expressive individualism is not just an unbiblical way of thinking that's out there in the non-Christian world. It is leaked into the church. Uh, last week, I showed you some recent survey data that gave evidence of how expressive individualism is pervasive in America today. Uh, here's one additional item from a recent survey. This was just done last year. Christians who identified as Bible-believing evangelical followers of Christ were asked, is this statement true or false? Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And what percent do you think said that was a true statement? Yeah. Listen, thanks to expressive individualism, Bible-believing Christians are losing the conviction that God establishes objective truth, permanent truth, and Christians are losing confidence that God reveals his unchanging truths to us in the Bible. So permit me to remind you quickly of the five beliefs, ideas that are foundational to expressive individualism. So EI says that at each person's core are feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions which I have nicknamed fitties. And taken together, these uh, fitties are also called the self. And sexual desire is an especially important aspect of the self. So second, uh, this psychological core, the self, has ultimate authority and human identity. Your feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions are truer and more reliable than your logical and rational thought processes. So they must be prioritized over your reason. Third, your fitties must overrule authorities outside of you, authorities including the Bible. You must look within, look within yourself to find your truth because you're the only judge of what will really make you happy. And this means that your inner feelings are the only supremely authoritative source of your truth. So fourth, to be a healthy and whole person, you must fully express or you must satisfy your unique feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. You must live so that your outward behavior agrees with your inner feelings. And today we tend to call this being authentic 
or being true to yourself. Or if you're really hip, you say something like, you be you. So. And fifth, expressive individualism is a political matter. It's not just a personal one. Because expressive individualism says that you violate a person's basic human rights if you hinder the full expression of his self. And that's why in America we see laws that are protecting a person's right to live according to his feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. So. And I tried to explain last week that um, expressive individuals in particular undermines, uh, denies three critical aspects of Christianity. The first being that it rejects the Bible's ultimate authority. And in its place, expressive individualism insists that the only authority you should listen to is inside of you, not outside of you, not the Bible. Second, expressive individualism denies that God's word defines what is true, and it instead insists that your feelings indicate what is actually true, with the result that expressive individualism ends up enslaving you to your feelings. And then third, expressive individualism repudiates the idea that people must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Christ. What expressive individualism tells us is not to crucify yourself, but rather to express yourself. So, so we looked at that last week, and we turned this morning to, okay, well then how should God's people respond um, to this worldview, this expressive individualism worldview? And this morning I'm going to mention three things. Uh, the first two things I'm going to spend about ten minutes each on, and then the third thing will take up most of our time. Uh, but the first thing that we need to do, how should God's people respond? So you can't just hope that you're going to be immune to expressive individualism. You can't build a firewall to keep it out of your life. You can't hope that expressive individualism is going to be somebody else's problem. Look, expressive individualism is not obvious. It doesn't come to you with warning labels. It can't be kept out with protective barriers or Star Trek-like force fields. You can't do that because expressive individualism is in our culture. It's in our culture, so it's expressed in the music we hear. It's communicated in the videos, in the live streams we, lost, we watch. It's a message and sometimes the, the, the central message of many Disney movies that have been released over the past 25 years. Um, expressive individualism is beat into us by the advertisements that we process. It, it's part of the advice given us by athletes and popular entertainers. Expressive individualism, it's just, it, it's, 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 it, it's the air that we breathe. And you can't avoid breathing the air. 
And in that sense, you just can't avoid expressive individualism. And so how should you respond to expressive individualism? Well, actually, um, Carl Truman, I think, helps us out here when he says, listen, simply being aware of the reality of our situation is important. For that allows us to engage in self-examination. Just knowing what's out there. Just being aware of expressive individualism. And, you know, I really, I, I really should be transparent and explain to you uh, why it is that I am so concerned about expressive individualism. Um, it's a personal issue for me. Uh, four years ago, I realized that my thinking had been strongly influenced by expressive individualism. And I almost made some really bad decisions. And I had to repent. So my story is that four years ago, I was looking off into my future and doing some long-range planning about a future retirement. And as I was thinking about this, I was saying things to myself, saying things like, Rob, you've worked hard your entire life. Now's the time to relax and treat yourself to some fun. Rob, you're burned out. You need to take care of yourself. You deserve some me time. Rob, you, you've served Christians and you've served the church for 40 years and now you're tired. It's time to reward yourself. You deserve to live the easy life. So, you know, and I saw these advertisements on TV, you know, with senior citizens uh, who were laughing and playing and dining, right? You know, they're tanned and they're muscular, right? You've seen the advertisements, right? And, uh, you know, they're swimming and they're playing pickleball all day long. And I was, and I was saying, man, that's what I want. I, want. I want the long summer vacation that never ends. And actually, I was researching um, how Caroline and I could retire uh, to a... Um, to some inexpensive third world country where we could, our money could go further, Ecuador, baby, or Panama, or Costa Rica. Um, and I was imagining spending my time laying in a hammock, suspended between palm trees, eating bananas, playing with monkeys, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, um, and the Lord Jesus Christ convicted me. He convicted me that I was thinking about the final chapter of my life with an expressive individualism way of thinking. Instead of me asking, how does God want me to live out the last chapter of my life? I was asking, how do I want to live out my retirement? And I was not consulting the Bible. I was consulting my feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. I was prioritizing my happiness. I was making comfort and leisure my goal. I was acting like um, after I declare my retirement, there's no more denying myself, taking up my cross and following Christ. And um, expressive individualism had influenced my thinking. Now, look, I want to be very clear about something, okay? Because you got to catch this part, okay? 
It's not like I sat down at the kitchen table and said, you know, I think I'm going to embrace expressive individualism now. That's not what I did, right? I mean, I didn't go and say, how can I be better at expressive individualism? I, I didn't do that, right? I mean, I, 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 never, I never said to myself, I'm going to listen to my sin-corrupted fitties now. What are my sin-corrupted fitties? I did not do that. Look, this is what happened. What happened was many voices in my culture were telling me that I deserved to reward myself, that I deserved to pamper myself for all my years of hard work. And the old man in me, my old sin-corrupted fitties, they wanted to hear that. And society was telling me, retirement time is me time. It's easy living time. And the remnants of sin in me, man, they like that. My culture was telling me I had earned the right to stop serving other people. You don't have to deny yourself anymore once you retire. And my old self-serving fitties really like that message. Expressive individualism influenced my thinking, and I did not realize it. Well, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, made me realize that this expressive individualism worldview had leaked into my life, and uh, I repented. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ changed my thinking. Uh, I'm happy to report that our good shepherd showed up in time, so this misguided sheep made no bad decisions. I created no casualties. Um, so look, I, I am not here today as a super Christian who knows how to who who knows exactly how to make sure that expressive individualism never touches you. Okay. I'm here today as an average Christian who was not and is not immune to expressive individualism. I know exactly what it's like to surrender to the expressive individualism worldview. And I do not want you to make the same mistake I made. How should God's people respond to expressive individualism? It's essential that we examine our feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions and make sure they're governed by the word of God. Like every person here has been influenced by expressive individualism to, one extent, to some extent. So we need to examine ourselves. Like Self-examination is such an essential part of the Christian life that the Bible says we're supposed to do it every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Here, this is from 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions about, the prop about properly celebrating the Lord's Supper. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. We examine ourselves. We identify sin in ourselves. We judge ourselves. We repent. Psalm 119, verses 59 and 60. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. You see the connection there between I think and I turn? I think on my ways, that's self-examination. I turn my feet to your testimonies, that's repentance. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and then again in verse 4. Keep watch on yourself. Let each one test his own work. First John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Look there at the beginning of verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, you know, you cannot confess your sins unless you first examine yourself. And, and so with regard to expressive individualism, we need to examine our feelings, our instincts, our desires, our intuitions, and we need to make sure they're governed by the word of God. And you need to frequently, frequently inspect the role that your fitties are playing in your thinking, the role they're playing in your decisions. And let's be honest, it is difficult to examine your feelings and desires, isn't it? It's difficult to admit that you have unbiblical feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. But, but self-examination is essential if you will minimize expressive individualism influence on you. How should we respond to expressive individualism? There's a third way. We need to confront our self-centered, expressive individualism culture with our local churches, other-centered, anti-expressive individualism culture. Let me explain what I mean by this, okay? And by the way, this is not something that I dreamed up sitting in my office. I remember first reading about what we're talking about here. I first read about this back in the late 1990s, and I didn't get it. Christian leaders back in the 1990s were foreseeing this day coming, and I just and I read it, and I said, oh, that's interesting, but it didn't click. So what you're hearing is something that Christian leaders have been talking about now for about 25 years. This idea that somehow the church, the local church, is the real antidote to expressive individualism. 
it's going to help if we just stop and think for a moment about how our self-centered, expressive individualism culture actually functions today. Well, today in America, people pursue one goal, namely maximizing their own personal happiness and comfort. So people prioritize their own personal needs. Uh, today, people try to give full expression to their unique feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. They try to satisfy their fitties. So people look within themselves to determine, okay, what's true for me? What works for me? What's going to satisfy me? And, and today in America, people are told, be, be courageous. Be heroic enough to be authentic. Do the things that really make you happy. So people are trying to be true to themselves. They're trying to follow their heart. And their purpose in life, their purpose in life is to, and here I will quote that great American philosopher Elsa from the movie Frozen, their purpose in life is to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. So th that's, that's how our culture works. Okay. So how does a healthy church work? See, robust local churches are the antidote to expressive individualism because a healthy local church may be the only place where non-Christians see the opposite of expressive individualism. In a healthy local church, instead of seeing self-centered people, they see people who live like Philippians chapter 2 instructs. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The local church, a community where people regard others as more important than themselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A community where people work to make sure that others thrive and that their friends in the church prosper. Verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A community where people do not wait for others to serve them and meet their needs. Rather, they serve other people and meet other people's needs. See, in a healthy local church, expressive individualism people, the people who think like that, are going to observe Christians who are not self-focused. They're going to see people who sacrifice for one another. They're going to see people who enjoy the security, the stability, 
created by friends and a caring community. They're going to see people who enjoy personal relationships that are rich and meaningful and satisfying. Look, the most effective response to America's increasingly city-driven culture is a vibrant and muscular local church. Carl Truman expressed this idea this way. When he said, many Christians talk of engaging the culture, and that phrase, engaging the culture, means something like confronting Americans you know, with God's truth, with the gospel, with Jesus Christ's lordship, okay? Many Christians talk of engaging the culture. In fact, the culture is most dramatically engaged by the church presenting it with another culture, another form of community. The church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. So why, or maybe I should say how, why or how does the Lord Jesus Christ church function like this? I mean, how does that work? Well, look here. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul's talking about local churches here. And he says Christians are not self-absorbed individualists. Why? Because they are members of, of the body of Christ. The Greek word there for members, that word literally means limbs of your, the limbs of your body or body parts. We're members one of another. Like the same idea appears in a, you know, a, a longer passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I can't fit the entire passage on the screen. I do want to read Verses 12 through 27. Uh, I'll, I'll read aloud. You can listen or you can turn in your Bibles and follow along with me. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, where the apostle says, look, a local church is the body of Christ on earth. I mean, Christ is in heaven. To the extent that Christ is on earth, his body is us. We are the body of Christ on earth, and we are appendages in the body. Here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll start in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, many limbs, many appendages, many body parts, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now look, Paul doubles down now on this, this whole body analogy. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, 
because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, if we were just a collection of arms, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay, now that don't overlook something really important here, okay? We humans, we often use analogies to explain mundane things. For example, I might say, finding my lost car keys is sometimes like finding a needle in a haystack. So it's a haystack. Needle. Oh, boy. How are you going to find a needle? Finding my lost car keys like finding a needle in a haystack, right? Analogies are helpful, right? We do the same thing with spiritual truths. We do this. We use analogies. I might say something like this. The Lord Jesus Christ is like a lifeguard at a pool. He sees a lifeless person floating in the water. Jesus jumps in, drags him to drive land, breathes new life into the person, and saves the person by giving him life. That word, that's, that's biblically true. That's accurate. That's an analogy. That's useful. That's helpful. Okay. All right. But my human, analogy, my human analogies are not divinely inspired. When humans come up with analogies, they're not perfect. They're infallible. Maybe helpful. But God's not the author of it. But in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we see a divinely inspired analogy. It's a perfect and infallible analogy. So God himself is saying, look, your local church, that's like a human body. Your local church, it functions like a human body. So how does a human body function? There in 1 Corinthians 12, verse, verse 21, I, I'll just use the, the idea that Paul used. 
verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Eyes. Uh, my eye does not sit over there by itself. Processing light, creating images on a retina. Hmm. My, my eye works in conjunction with my brain and my hands and my feet. In fact, my eye is useless if it does not perform its function, if it's not connected to and working in cooperation with my brain and my hands and my feet. My eye was never made to be an independent unit. My eye has always functioned as a dependent unit, right? It's just part of me. Which means my eye does not serve itself. My eye serves the rest of my body. In fact, my eye only has meaning if it's serving the rest of my body. If you were to pluck out my eye and sit on that table over there, you might as well throw my eye away because it isn't helping me at all. And, and, and while my eye serves my body, my body also serves my eye. Sometimes my hand reaches for eye drops and puts eye drops and helps out my eye. Sometimes I'm driving in the car and my brain says, get the sunglasses. And the sunglasses, my brain helps out my eye. Sometimes, look, when my eyesight is so bad, when I have to speak like this, I have to print these papers in enormous 22-point font. That's my fingertips saying we need to help out that eye and make the font 22 points. So my body also serves my eye. My body was designed to function as an interconnected unit. See, this is why a community of healthy Christians is shockingly different from a community of expressive individualism people. If we continue with the body analogy in an expressive individualism world, the self-focused self-serving individual is like an I who devotes his whole life to expressing his individual I-ness to making himself the most super duper I you can imagine an I with super sharp vision an I that perceives color perfectly an I with spectacular peripheral vision but an I that is not part of a body an independent eye, maybe a gloriously powerful eye, but an eye that does not serve anything except itself. When expressive individualism influences us, it often leads to the whole body of Christ getting sick. Because when expressive individualism influences me, it tempts me to focus on serving my own feelings, instincts, desires, and intuitions. 
and not serving you. Expressive individualism tempts me to not count you as more significant than me. It tempts me to look out only for my own interests and not your interests. It tempts me to not have the mind that Jesus had, which was to be a servant who served God's people. Are you with me on this? See, when I'm influenced by expressive individualism, it tempts me to not bear your burdens, to not encourage you and build you up, to not sacrifice so you flourish. It tempts me to not care about you, to not care about you enough to even correct you when I think you're wrong about something. When expressive, influ when expressive individualism influences Christians, you know how it makes the body of Christ sick? It tempts me to think of this local body of Christ like I think about Costco. Now, first, I don't mean to throw Costco under the bus here. I find Costco to be very useful. I like Costco. In fact, I do not just visit Costco. I am a member of Costco. I sign the membership papers. And Costco gets a decent chunk of my money. But I only go to Costco when I think I need something. And when I go to Costco, I don't buy everything in the store. Oh, no, no. I, I, I just get the stuff I think I need. And in fact, when I go to Costco, I try to minimize my time at Costco. I run in, I get what I think I need, and then I run back home, right? I get on with real living, right? Um, you know, you, and it, usually once a week is sufficient at Costco. Um, maybe most importantly, I do not have a relationship with the other Costco shoppers. I mean, I see them there. We're all members of Costco. We're all doing the same thing. We have something in common. But, but I, I don't know these people. Now, I'm polite. I mean, I, I sometimes make small talk, right, with the person giving you the free food. I, I do that. And, um, you know, I, and especially like after I'm sh done shopping, and I'm standing in the checkout line. I'm about to go home. I'll, I'll, you know, some lighthearted, you know, hi, how are you doing? Things are going okay. You know, some small talk. But I'm not committed to the well-being of my fellow Costco shoppers. I'm not at Costco to help them. I'm just there to get what I want. I certainly don't sacrifice for them. In fact, I don't know them well enough to know even if they need help. And they can't help me because they don't know me well enough to know what kind of help I need. And, and, and nor, nor am I very concerned about the health and the well-being of Costco. I mean, if Costco went bankrupt next week, I'd just find some other place like Costco, become a member there. Some, and I, nothing would be lost. I'd just find some other place that could provide the stuff I thought I needed. Like I, I shared with you earlier, 
how the Holy Spirit um, convicted me of how I permitted expressive individualism to influence my think about my retirement. Remember? The Holy Spirit is now convicting me that I permitted expressive individualism to influence my thinking about the body of Christ. I've been guilty of Costcoizing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means I failed you, at least on some levels. And I need to repent. I need to change my thinking. By a healthy body of Christ, a robust body of Christ. That confronts expressive individualism. Well, the most effective way to persuade Americans who think with an EI worldview that expressive individualism is a failed idea, the most persuasive way, show them the alternative. Show them a community where people don't think with an expressive individualism worldview. So look, you know, it's, it's not enough for me and you just to purge expressive individualism out of our lives and then go on living privatized, individualized Christian lives because God calls me and calls you to be his church, to be his body on earth, to live a corporate and church-centered life. That's why, I mean, we're, 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 we're called to not merely attend church. We're called to be to our church community what your eye is to your body. So will this really work, though? I mean, would it really work that um, doing church the way the Bible tells us to do church, will this really kind of make any inroads against expressive individualism. Okay, so I'm going to finish this message um, with first the words of a Christian mom and then the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? First, the words of a Christian mom. True story. Um, this was a, a Christian mom who um, had some minor surgery. She's just not, not someone in our church, but had some minor surgery and um, had to be off her feet and couldn't work for, you know, something like a week or 10 days or so. And so um, her local church, her friends, said, well, we'll bring you meals, right? You know, we, we did that around here, right? So we'll bring you meals. And so um, the church said, yeah, they signed up. And so they brought this mom and her husband and her children, they brought her meals. And so, you know, they're, you know, one day, you know, you know how this works, right? The, the minivan pulls into the driveway and mom, a mom jumps out with two or three children and boxes full of food and a crock pot right and a, you know and out they come and they come up to the door and they knock on the door and hand off the food and says, thank you very much this is great and the christian mom takes my kids back into next day different minivan different mom six children this time you know two crock pots big thing of iced tea right jump in knock on the door out comes the christian mom thank you you know takes it you know. so as this, as this goes on like a week or so um, unbeknownst to the Christian mom, her neighbor, who was a non-Christian, with whom the mom had a good relationship, the, the neighbor was watching all this. 
And sometime afterwards, after this was over, um, the neighbor was talking with the Christian mom. The neighbor said, you know, I was noticing all this, this armada of minivans showing up every day and every day depositing food in boxes and crockpots. What's, what's going on? And the Christian mom said, well, I, I, I had some minor surgery and um, you know, I couldn't prepare meals. And so those are my friends at church. My friends at church, you know, they put together meals and they brought them to us. The neighbor kind of looked and said, oh, yeah, this is no big deal. We do this all the time. You know, we, you know, my friends bring us meals, and this is commonplace. And the Christian mom said, my neighbor suddenly got really quiet and had a troubled look on her face and said, I don't think I have any friends who would do that for me. Will this really work? Doing church the way the Bible tells us to? Will it really defeat expressive individualism? Here are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We bow before you, and I pray that uh, you would make us, um, make us into the Christians you want us to be. And I know that means, and I would also pray that you would make us into the body of Christ that you want us to be. Would you please make it make it a reality that um, we would not Costcoize our church? Please make it a fact that we really do regard one another as more important than ourselves, please. I ask this, Jesus, um, for our benefit, but I ask this so that your kingdom um, might be more glorious. Please do this for your namesake. Amen. Amen.